Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Lead us in your ways, O Lord, and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You don't need to be a lot older than my friend Kai to know that taking those words from the page and practicing them in real life isn't easy or simple. Practicing forgiveness is is not easy. I listened this past week to an interview with a man named Michael McCullough, who's a professor here in South Florida at the University of Miami. He studies the human brain and human behavior. And I listened to an interview that he did in on NPR's On Being program in which he was talking about the human instinct to revenge. And he, he made the case from his research that the instinct toward revenge is actually hardwired into human beings' brains over eons of evolutionary adaptation. And that we actually now today, we can actually see physically as we study the electrical impulses on the human brain, we can see the effect that revenge has on the brain. Here's what he said in this interview. He said, we can actually look at what your brain looks like on revenge. It looks exactly like the brain of someone who is thirsty and is just about to get a sweet drink to drink, or somebody who's hungry and who's about to get a piece of chocolate to eat. It literally is a craving. Think about that. The desire for revenge, it works on our brains like a craving does. Forgiveness isn't easy, and it's not simple either. Even those of us who have been followers of Jesus for some time, we puzzle over forgiveness. How do you forgive somebody, for example, who hasn't really acknowledged even doing you wrong in the first place? How do you forgive somebody who's who's harmed you repeatedly? What do you do when you've asked for forgiveness from someone and they've refused it to you? It's not always simple to know what it means to practice these words in our lives. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Christians are forgiveness people. Christians are forgiving people fundamentally because we are forgiven people. All the rhythms of our lives and our own relationships, with our spouses, if you're someone who's married, with our families, in this community, in all the different other spheres in which we live, all of these relationships, they're shaped by the cosmic and costly act of grace that redefines us and remakes us. 
We forgive because our lives fundamentally are defined by forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You and I, we're, we're not the first people to puzzle over forgiveness. In Jesus' own ministry, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have record of another time when Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, was himself puzzling over what it meant to forgive, how to forgive someone, how many times to forgive someone. And Jesus, in response to his question, he tells a haunting parable that unfolds for us the inner dynamics of forgiveness and the cost both of forgiveness and of non-forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, this is, this is what Matthew tells us. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him by the throat and said, pay what you owe. His fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed then they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. So his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have shown your fellow slave mercy as I showed you mercy? And in his anger, his Lord turned him over to be tortured until he would pay the entire debt. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, Jesus taught, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Peter comes to Jesus, puzzling over forgiveness. How often do I forgive somebody when they sin against me? He thinks he's, he's being noble, valiant. Should I forgive seven times? And Jesus, in response, simply explodes his arithmetic. He says, not seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. Jesus here isn't, he isn't just giving Peter a higher number than he thought 
to aim for. Jesus here is helping Peter and helping us to see that when it comes to forgiveness, if you are still counting, you have not yet started forgiving. And then Jesus unfolds for Peter and for us the inner dynamics of forgiveness with a story. He tells a story about a king who is owed by one of his servants or slaves 10,000 talents. Now, that's not a unit of currency most of us are familiar with. In the world that this story comes to us from, the talent was the largest unit of currency, and 10,000 was the largest multiplier people used in mathematics at this time in the world. So, This story is like Jesus telling us a story about one guy who owes another guy a bajillion, gajillion dollars. That's the point. This guy falls on his knees and pleads with the king, promising that that he can pay it off if the king will just be patient. Of course, this guy in a hundred lifetimes could not pay this debt off. But then, in a shocking, staggering act of mercy... The king, at great cost to himself, releases this man from his debt. This is a a stunning word picture for us of what God does in the world for us through Jesus. The scriptures tell us in no uncertain terms, we owe a debt in sin so massive that it buckles the knees of God's son. And yet on the cross, Jesus pays our debt for us. Jesus coming for us and dying and rising for us is God lavishing forgiveness on us that we could never hope to deserve. This is the very center of the Christian story. God's outlandish, costly forgiveness for us and for the whole world in Jesus. Now, I'll note as an aside, I know that even for those of us for whom you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're somebody, if you're somebody that you're here with a friend today or you're in the process of, of investigating Christian faith, I know that when, when you hear the scriptures talk about it being good to forgive people, you likely, at least hypothetically, think that that's a good idea. What I want to help you notice is that you live in a world where you instinctively assume that forgiveness is a good idea and makes the best sense of human life because you live in a world that has been marked by Jesus of Nazareth. This was not always an implicit assumption that we've had. There's a professor at NYU named David Constant who wrote a landmark history of the, of the development of the idea of forgiveness in human society. The book's called Before Forgiveness, The Origins of a Moral Idea. And, and he outlines that in the ancient pagan world, the idea of forgiveness was more or less unknown. In the ancient world, the gods were were more or less just like us. They were angry, they were petty, they were vengeful. The gods didn't love their enemies, the gods didn't forgive people who hurt them, and thus people weren't really expected to do any of those things either. It was into this world that Jesus and his movement burst. Jesus who taught his followers, love your enemies, pray for people that persecute you, forgive 70 times 7. 
Jesus who died praying for the forgiveness of his executioners. Millennia later, you and I, we live in a world in which, in which we more or less assume that forgiveness is a good and a noble thing because we live in a world that has now been decisively shaped by the teaching and story of Jesus. So what I want, what I want you to see is that there's a reason that forgiveness seems to make such deep sense of your life. It's because... The story of Jesus makes deep sense of your life. You know, it isn't always, if, if you're unfamiliar with Christian faith, intuitive to us as to, as to why it is that Jesus dies for God to forgive us. You know, I've interacted with plenty of folks exploring Christian faith who, who ask that question, like, why, why is it that Jesus has to die for God to forgive people? If God's loving and forgiving, why doesn't God just, just forgive? There's a Christian leader from the 20th century named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a church leader during the rise of, of the Nazis and wound up actually paying for his life for his opposition to Nazi fascism because of his Christian convictions. And there's a place in his writings where he writes about forgiveness, and he talks about forgiveness as costly, suffering love. I think that that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You know that this is true in your own life. Every act of forgiveness entails paying a cost. Now, this is true financially. So if you're a banker, for example, and you write a loan to somebody who wind up, winds up being unable to pay it back, they come sit with you in your office and tell you they have no hope of ever paying back this loan, you essentially have two options, don't you? You can make them pay. You can take them to court, sue them for all they're worth, take their house, their, you know, their car, all those things. You can choose to make them pay, or you can choose to forgive the loan. But what are you doing if you do that? You're incurring the cost yourself. You're in essence saying, I'm not going to make you pay, I'll pay. We know that this is true in our own relationships. You have somebody who's close to you, a close friend or a, or a spouse, who, who hurts you in some real and lasting way. You have two choices as you decide what to, what to do with that hurt. You can make the other person pay for it. You can make sure they know just what they've done to you. You can find all sorts of little and big ways to, to in, turn, in turn act in vengeance. You can, you can make sure that you rub their nose in all the effects of what they've done in your life. You can make them pay for it. Or you can, you can forgive them. But you know what you're signing up for if you choose to forgive them. You're incurring a cost. You're choosing to not take out on them what you, what you feel you rightfully could. You're choosing to, to release them from the effects of their actions in your life. You're saying, I'm not going to make you pay. I'll pay. Friends, the cross of Jesus is God saying to you and to me and to the whole world, you don't have to pay. I'll pay. I'll pay. So this story unfolds to us the lavish forgiveness of God. 
There's a dark punchline here as well too, isn't there? This same servant, freshly liberated from massive debt, on the way out from the king's palace, he bumps into somebody who owes him some money. Jesus says he bumps into somebody who owes him 100 denarii. Now a denarii in this world was the wage for a day's labor. And so owing somebody 100 denarii was not a small amount of money, but it's pocket change compared to what this guy has just had forgiven on his behalf. And what does he do? He grabs the other servant by the neck, eyes wide and veins bulging, and growls at him, pay me what you owe. He's deaf to the poor guy's desperate pleas for mercy, and he tosses him in prison. And then there's the the sober close of this story. The king finds all of this out, and after he hears that this man has refused pity, he in turn refuses pity. So is Jesus really saying that people who refuse forgiveness will finally be refused forgiveness? It seems like he is. The point, I think, is that the the spiritual organ, as it were, for both receiving and giving forgiveness is one and the same. Just as you use your lungs for both inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon monoxide, the function of our soul in which we receive God's mercy and forgiveness is the same function by which we in turn metabolize it and practice it with other people. Jesus, in his teaching in Matthew 18, he's articulating the shape of God's kingdom, the direction that God is taking God's creation. Jesus is making a point that God is building a family that's going to be marked by forgiveness, that's going to have forgiveness at its very center. This is how the world that God is building works. And so if you and I want to refuse to live in that world, God is willing to honor our decision. Jesus tells us this story to help us realize that the cost of forgiveness is pennies compared to the cost of non-forgiveness. There's a writer named Anne Lamott that I like a lot who wrote a memoir of her extraordinarily unlikely journey into Christian faith called Traveling Mercies. And there's one place in her memoir where she's talking about forgiveness and she says, not forgiving someone is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. I think that that's true. So the question for us is, what does it look like here and now for us to practice the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus? Taking our cues from the scripture that Kai shared with us, and the story that Jesus tells us. I just want to briefly suggest three things. First, it means that we need to experience forgiveness. Whether whether you're someone who's beginning a journey of Christian faith and receiving God's forgiveness for the first time, or you're somebody who's been a follower of Jesus for months or years or decades, and, and you need to afresh comprehend and experience God's staggering forgiveness in Scripture and prayer as you come to the table. The first thing is to experience the forgiveness that we have been given. Without this, forgiveness falters. 
There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf who talks about this dynamic. He was, a, he was a Croatian person. He grew up in the throes of the Yugoslav War, and today he teaches at Yale University. And he wrote a landmark book on forgiveness called Exclusion and Embrace. And in it, he talks about this dynamic. I want you to listen to how, how he describes this. He says this. He says, forgiveness founders, because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. Let me break down what that means practically. This is what the cross shows us in situations where we've been wronged. When I look at the cross, I realize that the person who's done me wrong, even though I want to think of them as utterly evil and beyond hope or love or help, that person, the cross tells me, has been deemed by God as worth dying for. God loves them, no matter how wrong they are, no matter what they've done to me, so deeply that Jesus is glad to die for them. And the cross shows me, when I look at myself, that no matter how noble I think I am, no matter how, how right I think I am, I'm still flawed and sinful enough that Jesus has to die for me, for God to forgive me. It's only when you experience the cross in your own depths that you'll in turn practice the forgiveness that we receive at the cross. Second, we imitate the, the cruciform pattern of Jesus' forgiveness. I want to be clear here. Forgiveness doesn't mean minimizing or turning a blind eye to things that have been done to you. It doesn't mean that you don't take a wrong that's been done to you seriously. It means that you, you do take it seriously. It means that you name it and then that you choose to pardon it. This doesn't always mean that there won't be consequences in the life of a relationship. If you have a spouse who's unfaithful to you and they, they siphon off all your money and wild internet gambling, you may take the journey with Jesus of coming to forgive them. But you probably shouldn't give them your credit card number again. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there's never any consequences in a relationship, but it does mean that you release the offender from the, the wrong that you feel you have a right to. It means that you bury the hatchet and you don't keep a map to where you put it. And it means that you let God free you from being destroyed by whatever it is that's been done to you. That's what it means to imitate Jesus in a life of forgiveness. Last, I'll, I'll simply say that practicing Jesus-shaped forgiveness means being willing to take a journey as well too. 
the Christian writer C.S. Lewis, as he talks about Peter's question that he asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? And Jesus says 77 times seven or 77 times. Oftentimes, Lewis points out when we read that passage at a surface level, we think that we ought to be willing to forgive somebody for 77 different wrong things that they do to us. But in reality, you and I, we, we all know that when we, when we have somebody who's especially close to us wrong us, or when we've been wronged in some deep way, oftentimes it takes 77 acts of forgiveness to really work the forgiveness that Jesus gives you into your soul as you interact with the person who's, who's hurt you. There's a Christian thinker named Lewis Smeets who says that forgiveness is a journey, and the deeper the offense that's done to you, the longer the road. Deep, thorough, soul-level forgiveness is a journey, not just a moment. But following Jesus means being on that journey. So maybe the question to think about is who you need to start or take a next step on that journey with. This came home to me just, just this past week as I was reflecting on these texts. In the middle of the week, as I was reflecting on these passages, I had a ding on my phone. And it was the, it was the name of someone who, in a prior period of, of my wife Monica and I's ministry, had, had harmed us in, in, a very, in a very real way. They had done things that were, that were wrong, that had real effects on our family, that took us real time to, to work through and talk through and pray through. And we've done over a period of time the work to express forgiveness to this person. And when I saw that name ding on my phone, all that, all that old hurt and anger, shame, all, all of that, just, just inside of me, the spigot turned right on and it all, it all came right back. And we needed to go on that journey again of being willing to forgive this person. And, and I realized in doing so that I was probably still doing some counting, so probably still needed to do some forgiving. Now, real forgiveness is a, is a journey. But it's a journey that Jesus invites us to take with him. Because the cost of forgiveness pennies compared to the cost of non-forgiveness. So friends, may you be forgiveness people because you have been forgiven so much and so well by God and Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.